Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open now your book of Holy Scriptures to read and to hear it proclaimed to us, would you open our ears to hear, open our minds and hearts to understand it, open up our lives to be ruled by you and you alone, our Savior and our God. As we listen now, take away every distracting thought, take away every lingering anxiety, so that we might focus on what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text, Micah chapter 5. Verse 2 is our central text, but we'll be studying verses 1 through 5a this morning, page 779 in the Pew Bibles. So Micah chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 1 through 5a. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is our third sermon in our Advent series, looking at the Old Testament prophecies of the birth of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In God's providence, his birth was foretold hundreds of years before it came to pass, not only to show the significance of this event, but also because God's people would need these prophecies to hold on to hope during many difficult trials and afflictions that he would bring them through. Last week we looked at Isaiah 7, the prophecy of the virgin birth of Emmanuel, God with us, and then Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, followed by his fourfold title, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This morning we're looking at Micah chapter 5. And I already mentioned earlier in the reading that this prophecy was well known at the time of Christ's birth, not only among the religious leaders and scholars, as we saw in Matthew chapter 2, but it was also known among the common people according to John seven forty-two. All The Jewish people knew that Messiah was coming. They were waiting for him. They expected him to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. There's much more to this prophecy than just the place where he was to be born. This morning, we will learn about the context of this prophecy and what it has to teach us about the nature of hoping and waiting. For we too are waiting. We are waiting for the glorious return, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We also learn here about the humility of our Savior, about the nature of his rule, and about how he came to bring in peace, peace with God and peace among men. So let's begin first this morning with considering the prophecy in its original context. Now, the prophet Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, who we were looking at last week. And that means that he prophesied during the 8th century BC, 700 years before the birth of Christ. He prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah in Jerusalem. Now, we saw last week how the evil king Ahaz had made a foolish alliance with the Assyrian Empire to the north. And this would actually lead to the king of Assyria attacking Judah to ravage the land. In 722 BC, Assyria had swept down and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and he had carried them off into exile. Now it's 20 years later. They had returned, and the threat is that perhaps the same fate would befall the southern kingdom of Judah. So these are dark days, difficult days. And we read in verse 1 how Jerusalem is under siege. The whole city is surrounded with a great army. So we read verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is describing King Sennacherib of Assyria's siege of Jerusalem during the days of King Hezekiah, 701 B.C. So here Micah calls Jerusalem to rally itself, to muster her troops. At the same time, the second half of the verse speaks of a profound humiliation of her king, her judge. To strike the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod, it would be to utterly humiliate him. Now this refers to the way the spokesman of Sennacherib mocks and insults King Hezekiah before the men on the wall. We have his words recorded for us in 2 Kings 18. The spokesman shouts to the man on the wall, Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Uh, the, the king, King Hezekiah's uh, servants beg the spokesman to speak in Aramaic, in a foreign tongue, not in Hebrew, so that the man on the wall cannot understand his mocking words. But of course, his point is to make the defenders of the wall tremble as he speaks of the might of the Assyrian army in preparation to make his assault on the walls of Jerusalem. He then goes on with his boasts. He boasts of how the gods of all the other lands could not uh, prevent and save their people from the Assyrian armies. And he says, how will the Lord deliver Jerusalem from them? Now, it's in this context, when the Lord's people are under siege, when their ruler is mocked and humiliated, that this prophecy of a Messiah who will deliver his people comes through the prophet Micah. And so we see this is a prophecy of hope. However, if you look at the historical accounts as it goes on from 2 Kings 18 to chapter 19, you'll see that Hezekiah in his distress, he does not go to consult the prophet Micah, but actually Isaiah. It is Isaiah who tells him that the Lord will deliver them from the immediate threat of the Assyrian army. And so he does. 
But Micah prophesies a child to be born, a future ruler to come. And there's great hope in this Messiah to come. However, there is a catch. We'll come back to verse 2, the ruler to come. But let's read now verse 3a, if you'll look there with me. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Here we see that this deliverance of this ruler to come will not come until the Messiah is born. But until that time, the Lord will in some sense give his people up. He will hand them over. I've already said he does not actually, he does deliver them from this immediate threat of the Assyrians, this current siege, but they still suffer the loss of territory and wealth to this invading army. But later on, They will suffer defeat and then exile at the hands of the Babylonians. After this, they'll be subject to the Medes and the Persians. And then after that, the Greeks and then finally the Romans. One defeat after another. And so this prophecy, the darker side of Micah 5, is fulfilled. The Lord gives his people up to be ruled by foreign nations for several centuries until the time of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah comes. And what Micah and his contemporaries do not know when this prophecy is given is that the birth of the Messiah to come will not happen for another 700 years. So why is this prophecy given at this time? What is the purpose of the prophecy? This prophecy gives God's people a sure and a certain hope that they can hold on to through all the trials that are coming. It is a prophecy that God will deliver his people, that the Messiah, the promised Messiah will come. The Christ, the anointed son of David, he will surely come. And even though it is honest that God's people will suffer at the hands of their enemies, they also know that they will be preserved sufficiently so that there will be a people for the Messiah to deliver and to rule over when he comes. And yet, no timeline is given. We know 700 years pass. But Micah didn't know it would be 700 years. And it's the same way at Jesus. He doesn't tell us how long the church age will last before his second coming? So each time a Christian prays, come Lord Jesus, whether that's in the first century AD, Jesus' first apostles praying that prayer, or even as we pray it today, all Christians pray that prayer with the expectation he might come this very moment, he might come tomorrow. point is not how many days or years pass with waiting, but that God causes people to hold on to hope each and every day to trust in his faithfulness that he is a God who keeps his word. He is a God who is faithful to fulfill his promises. The application to us today is clear, just as God's people in Micah's day trusted in the Lord and held on to the hope of Christ's first coming. So we are called to do the same today. 
We trust in the Lord and we hold on to the hope of his coming. Hold on to hope. That's what they did. And he came the first time. And that's what we do today, knowing he will come a second time. Now let's look at the details of the prophecy. First, looking at this key verse, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. In this verse, we see that the Messiah is to come forth from Bethlehem Ephrathah. You're probably less familiar with that second name, Ephrathah, but it's another name for this small village of Bethlehem. It's first identified in the Bible in Genesis 35, very early on, as it's near the place where Jacob's wife, Rachel, dies as she's giving birth to her son, Benjamin. In both of these names, they are full of meaning. Ephrathah means fruitful, and Bethlehem means house of bread. This makes an appropriate birthplace for the one who would feed the 5,000. And afterwards, he declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35. He uses this miracle of producing physical food uh, for the crowds to point to the way that as our Savior, he provides us with spiritual nourishment. He is the one who Uh, feeds us with the words of eternal life. On the prophecy, the Lord highlights how small this village is. The 12 tribes of, or the 12 tribes, they were each composed of many smaller clans, each having their own town. But this village, it doesn't even qualify to be numbered among the clans of Judah. It's so small that when the survey of Judah is made in the book of Joshua, it lists 115 towns, but this village doesn't even make the top 115. And yet it is God's glory to use the small, the insignificant, the despised things of this world to accomplish his mighty purposes. This was the hometown of David, and the Messiah will be following in David's footsteps in so many ways. It was uh, David who was the youngest of his brothers. He was left out in the fields with the sheep so that when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel, his father Jesse didn't even think to offer up David as a candidate. But the Lord chose David. The Lord chose the youngest. And then when Goliath was threatening Israel, it was the young shepherd boy David who, through faith in the Lord, slew the giant warrior Goliath. And now the Lord will again choose this small backwater of a town. He will choose Bethlehem to be the birthplace of his chosen one. And today you can go to Hodgenville, Kentucky, and you can see a recreation of the log cabin where President Abraham Lincoln was born. Even to this day, Hodgenville, Kentucky, it's a tiny town The population, just over 3,000 people. In some ways, this prophecy would be like for us to be told today that the next great American president will be born in Hodgenville, Kentucky. 
It would seem so improbable, so hard to believe, in part just because there are so few births in such a small town. What are the chances? Doesn't it seem so improbable for lightning to strike the same place twice? But of course, this is the Lord's plan for there to be a new and a greater David. But there's one more wrinkle in the plan. In Micah's day, the Davidic kings, they reign in Jerusalem. They have their children in Jerusalem, not in Bethlehem. Was it not David himself who conquered Jerusalem and established his family there in that great city? And so, how would one from David's line, a new and greater David, now come forth from Bethlehem, the city left behind? Of course, we see that by the time of the New Testament, there are no longer Davidic kings reigning in Jerusalem. And yet, it will require a Roman emperor to take a census at just the right time to get David's offspring to return to their ancestral hometown. Of course, all these things are easily in the hand of the sovereign Lord who controls all of history to moves people where and when he wants them. Coming forth from this small, insignificant town is one who is, we are told, to be a ruler in Israel. He is David's descendant, and yet in Psalm 110, David calls him, my Lord. He will be a new and greater David to succeed where David and his descendants have failed. And note especially the Lord says, if you read closely, he will be a ruler for me. Those two small words, it's so easy to miss this little phrase in the midst of the verse, but it is of utmost significance. This also reminds us that this is the Lord who is speaking here through his prophet. For me. It means that he will serve the Lord, not himself. He is to be a true servant of the Lord. There's also an echo here of the Lord's commission to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16.1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. As you know from reading your Bibles and from history, kings who actually serve the Lord rather than serving themselves and serving idols, they are extremely rare. Rare both in Israel's history as well as rare in the world history in general. That was the problem with King Saul. He did not serve the Lord. And even righteous David, he had major failures, major sins. And then as we follow David's line on down, you have Solomon, you have Rehoboam, and you go down the line, the kings are less and less, fav- less, and less uh, faithful to the Lord, with a few very rare exceptions. But the Lord Jesus, he came saying, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38. He lived in perfect obedience to his heavenly father, making him the perfect righteous king, a king who remained a humble servant of the Lord. And the final phrase from verse 2 reads, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
there are at least three things we can take away from this phrase. First, this means that the Lord planned this from of old. That's evident even in this prophecy given 700 years in advance. Second, this phrase points to the way that Jesus' coming is a recapitulation of David. It hearkens back to his birth hundreds of years earlier. And third, this phrase points to something deeper, something even more profound. What could it possibly mean for a baby to be born whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days? And this doubling of the reference, pointing backwards twice in a row, it intensifies it. This could not possibly be an ordinary birth. It can only refer to someone who already existed long before his birth, who was not created anew at the time of his conception, but rather took on human flesh in order to come down, to condescend for our salvation. This phrase points to the fact that the Messiah is the already existing eternally existing, the almighty Son of God. The Apostle John puts it this way in the prologue of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1, 2, and 14. And so the one who was already ancient, who was in fact eternal, God took on flesh, and yet he was born in humility and placed in a manger that day in Bethlehem. He was born to be a ruler for the Lord. But then the passage goes on to tell how the Messiah will rule. In verses 4 to 5a. Verse 4 begins, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Now here, this verse draws on this common Old Testament imagery of a king caring for his people, just as a shepherd cares for his sheep. It's the same imagery used of God's care for his people in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's also rooted in the fact that King David was himself a shepherd before the Lord called him to be a king. Here we see the Messiah is a perfect shepherd. As he does this in the strength and the majesty of the Lord his God. And we see Christ fulfills this prophecy, most of all, in John chapter 10, where he reveals that he is, as he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Of course, he fulfills all the functions, all the functions of the shepherd, knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting his sheep. But most of all, he is willing to give himself, even to lay down his life for the eternal salvation of his sheep. And verse 4 continues, And they shall dwell secure, For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this contrasts with the handing over of God's people until Messiah's coming that we saw back in verse 3a. But now that Messiah has come, his people will dwell secure. This is a fulfillment of one of the Lord's original promises to David 
in 2 Samuel 7.10. There the Lord promised to David, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. But now, with Messiah's coming, this is no longer limited to one place for God's people. For the king's greatness, it reaches to the ends of the earth. It implies that Messiah's reign will expand to encompass the whole earth. We see this beginning to be fulfilled immediately after Christ's birth, in where we read in Matthew chapter 2, with the visit of the wise men coming from the east. Although they come seeking specifically the king of the Jews, the fact that they come from so far to worship him, it shows that he is born a king, and one day this kingdom will cover the whole earth. All peoples will worship him. And of course, that's what we see by the time of Christ's great commission. As he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 18 and 19. His greatness and his kingdom know no bounds. But rather, they extend to the ends of the earth. The conclusion of our passage is found in verse 5a, and he shall be their peace. What a beautiful ending to our passage, and it dovetails nicely with the prophecy we saw last time from Micah's contemporary Isaiah. He says, Messiah will be called Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Isaiah 9. Notice here, this does not say Jesus brings peace or he works or he makes peace. It simply says he shall be peace. He is peace. He embodies peace in himself. Well, this doesn't make it into the Gospel of John as one of the great I am statements. I think it very well could have. Jesus could have declared, I am peace. I am the peace of God. But of course, from this greater statement, Jesus is peace, comes the lesser. He does work peace. He brings reconciliation between God and sinners. As we read in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And because he has paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, we now have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another element of the peace established by the Messiah that's brought out in this very passage. There's one more verse that we haven't looked at yet. Verse 3b. There we read, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now, in the original context, these brothers would be referring to northern Israel. Northern Israel, who had first departed from the south in rebellion and then apostasy. And then more recently, they had been carried off into exile by Assyria. And so this is a hope of salvation, not just for those that remain in the southern kingdom of Judah, but a restoration of all of God's people, even those carried off into exile. Now, this will be fulfilled and Messiah comes, but there's a problem. Because by the time that Christ comes, the northern tribes have become the lost tribes. They are 
scattered among the nations, completely lost to history? How can they be brought back in? How can God still keep his word? Well, though we might not know, they might not even know who they are. God knows those who are descended from the lost northern tribes. And he will welcome them back by having his Messiah now throw open the doors of salvation, throw open the doors of his kingdom to all the nations. And I believe that is why Paul quotes Micah chapter 5, verse 5, when he speaks of how Christ not only brings in the Gentile nations, but establishes peace between Jew and Gentile in Ephesians chapter 2. He writes, For he himself is our peace, quoting Micah 5, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the divining wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, thereby killing the hostility. Now in these verses, Paul is highlighting two ways that Christ makes peace. First, he is making peace among men between Jew and Gentile within the church, within Christ's kingdom. But second and more importantly, peace between God and man, reconciling us all to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's saying Christ is our peace. He is our peace. And all I can ask you is, is he your peace? Are you trusting in Christ today? In this prophecy, we've seen that God has glorified himself in sending his son to enter this world in the most humble of circumstances. When he actually arrives, we know that the little village of Bethlehem is only the beginning of his humiliation. For when he is born, there's nowhere to lay him except in a manger in an animal feeding trough. But Christ, the glorious ruler of his people, the ruler whose kingdom will extend to the ends of the earth, will abase him far more if it is required to shave to save his sheep. He goes down and down and down in his humiliation to the point of being tortured, stripped naked, and hung on a cross, and then dying and buried in a grave. He does it all to bear our guilt and our shame. And yet it's from these depths of humiliation that he rises. For he rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is crowned with glory and power and all authority in heaven and on earth is now his. And now we hold on to hope as we await his glorious return. And that means that whatever you pass through in this life, whatever trial, whatever affliction, you can hold on to hope for you follow a humble and suffering Savior. One time when Martin Luther was teaching on creation, it said that he said, God created this world out of nothing. And as long as you are not yet nothing, God cannot make something out of you. 
Luther opposed every theology of glory, rather taught that we are to have a theology of the cross. For we follow a crucified Savior, one who was born in humility, born in that little town of Bethlehem, laid in a manger, and yet he now sits at God's right hand to reign, and he will return in glory. Are you humble enough to serve the Savior who is the Prince of Peace, who is peace himself? Are you trusting in him, waiting for him, holding on to hope? Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we praise you, our great God, for you are the one who glories in making things out of nothing. You made all that now is out of nothing, and you had your one and only Son enter this world in such great humility, coming as a baby born into the small town of Bethlehem, set in a feeding trough, and humiliated further on the cross. And yet, now he reigns as the Lord of glory. Help us to recognize that we are nothing, dust given breath by your mercy. We can merit nothing, and yet you have set your love upon us in your Son. And it's only by your mercy that we now come to you and we call you Abba, Father. Oh, how you have loved us. And we thank you, Father, that you have given us peace, that you have given us an eternal hope in Christ Jesus. Help us to hold fast to that hope every day and through every trial. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.